But this specific person joined our group and one day she asks for us to go to a hospital to pray for a friend's grandmother who's in a coma. When I make it to the hospital, she shows up. And while we're there waiting, we start talking about the things of God. We start talking about how, how God is moving and all these different things. And she says, I gotta tell you something though. I can't stop thinking about you. I said, what? When I'm like washing the dishes, while I'm at work, even when I'm talking to my own husband, cause she was married. And at this time I was married too. Throughout the day, all day, I, I can't stop thinking about you. You're just in my head. And the first thing that I can utter out of my mouth was, you shouldn't have told me that. And I went to her job with the intention to try to do something, to try to like physically hug her, kiss her, whatever it was. And she resisted, she fought, but eventually she gave in. That officially started a physical affair. I heard for the first time God's audible voice and he says, if you have sex with her, you shall surely die. I'm Pastor Noel Resio. I'm from Dykeman, it's Manhattan, New York. And um, I am co-founder to Jubilee Hill Ministry and the pastor of the ICU Church. ICU stands for the Intensive Christ Unit. I converted at the age of 24, but I grew up uh, Catholic with my parents. Um, I'm my dad's only child and my mom's fifth child. They both had, they were both at the age of 40 when they had me. And uh, my dad was very religious. Um, he comes from a very poor uh, background. So does my mom, um, very low education. His last grade that he completed was eighth grade. My mom's last grade that she completed was in third grade. A lot of the things that other kids had, a lot of the resources, a lot of the abilities that they had, I didn't have. But I didn't complain too much because, to be honest, what they gave me was better than some of the things that the other kids had. They gave me a really great upbringing. It was a really tight-knit household. Me and my siblings, we were all pretty close. But that didn't stop us from living in a poor neighborhood. And it, just, it didn't stop us from poor attitudes. I grew up in, as I mentioned, Dykeman, specifically, you know, Sherman. For those people who know, my neighborhood is not the friendliest of neighborhoods. It's pretty gangster. Not the most gangster, but gangster nonetheless. And I grew up watching my siblings, who are at least 10 years older than me. So when I was five, the next youngest sibling was 15. And I was exposed to some pretty heavy stuff. I saw a lot of the street life inside my home, and I heard what was happening outside in the street inside the home. And although I was brought up in a very strict religious upbringing, Catholic upbringing, I always wanted to be a gangster. I wanted to be a G. But I never lost my relationship with Jesus. From a very young age, I would communicate with God on my own, heavily, always, consistently, but still giving in to the desires of the flesh. That's kind of going to be a resounding theme in my testimony, battling with my strong relationship with Jesus, but at the same time, losing the battle against my flesh. I started to suffer depression from a very young age. My mom suffers from bipolar disorder. So sometimes she would go through seasons of very low lows, and I couldn't understand it as a child. As a matter of fact, when I was about four or five years old, I dropped a glass of soda, the glass shattered, the soda spilled, it was filled to the brim. And I remember my mom pulling out a knife and she walked slowly toward me and my dad tackled her. And I remember that image and I carried that with me. I thought to myself, if my mom is willing to stab me, I don't care about nobody else. What you gonna do to me that my mom wouldn't already do to me anyway? So I walked with that on my back. But the older I got, the more I started to think about it. And the more I thought about it, the more it hurt. And I start to fall into a depression. Man, I can't, I can't even describe how bad it is, but I'm gonna try. It would come in waves of my life seasons, sometimes weeks at a time, sometimes months at a time, but never more than a year. And every time it came back, it came back worse. I would cope with a lot of different methods. I use a lot of different things to deal with that pain. It's tough because I felt alone, even though I was the brightest smile in the room. I used drugs to cope. I started drinking alcohol at a very young age, 13. Sort of smoking weed at 15. And those things worked only to numb the pain that I felt. But I still felt terrible about myself. And the only kind of drug 
not explicitly a substance that kind of helped me to actually start to feel good about myself was when I participated in acts of sexual immorality. It was only when I talked to girls and they gave me the attention and I became the object of their lust that I started to feel good about myself. The drugs and the substances numbed me, but the girls made me feel good about myself. But I always wanted love and I never wanted to settle for something superficial. And I was tired of feeling so sad all the time, knowing that even though I defeated one bout of sadness, that sooner or later another and greater bout of sadness would come against me. I was in the street with my boys, my brother, his boys. And one day my brother comes to me and he asks me, he tells me with his girl at the time, he says, oh, her cousin who lives in Florida, she needs a sweet 16 partner because she's coming here for her birthday. It happens to take place in July. And I thought, hmm, what kind of girl needs a sweet 16 partner? Girls find sweet 16 partners all the time. She must be ugly. <laughs> she wasn't. Little did I know God was answering my petition because a year before he makes that request, I was very unlucky looking for love. I would feel so sad all the time. One night I had cried so bad. I mean, to this day, it was one of the worst cries I've ever had, alone in the night, in bed, soaked pillow. And I told God, if I don't meet somebody, a significant somebody, by June 1st, I'm gonna turn into a man whore. I'm gonna just do my thing. The last week of May, I meet this girl. And I didn't know it at the time, but this girl would change my life. I would be her sweet 16 partner, but down the line, she would end up becoming my partner in Christ, my partner in life, and my partner as parents. And quite frankly, one of the greatest, if not the greatest gifts that God has given me on this earth. We met, we had a great time practicing for the Sweet Sixteens. We ended up falling in love. We weren't in Christ. So we were couples in the world and we did all the things that couples in the world would do. When I say in the world, I mean people who are not in Christ. We, we had sex, we did all the things that we needed to do that we thought we needed to do, but I still could not defeat the flesh. I still gave myself up to a lot of the sexually immoral things that I was doing before, especially when I would go through the seasons of downness. When the depression and the sadness would kick in, I needed the boost of energy. I needed the self-esteem. The alcohol wasn't cutting it. I couldn't smoke enough weed in order to numb the pain, it wouldn't be enough to try to talk to girls, multiple girls. At the age of 24, I met her when I was 17, she was 16. At the age of 24, I had my first encounter with Christ in a different way. I was invited to a Bible study. There was a girl who she wasn't even Christian, but for some odd reason, she wanted to have a Bible study on her birthday. And she wanted everybody to come. She wanted all her friends to come. And I wasn't one of the friends she invited, but my wife, who wasn't Christian either yet, was invited and she told me, I think it'd be a good idea if you come too. When I show up to this Bible study, this lady, very small lady, but my, oh my God, is she a giant in Christ. She starts to preach Jesus in a way I've never heard anyone preach Jesus before, at least not the way that I was used to. And when she's done with the preaching, right, we're in a home and she finishes ministering the gospel. She asks us, there were about 15 or 20 of us in this room. She asks us if we want to accept Christ. And I told her I already knew Christ, but she said, you, you, you may know Christ, but have you accepted Christ? Because Christ makes everyone an offer. And just because you know him doesn't mean that you have accepted his offer for salvation. She's making the offer to everyone. She's asking everyone, do they want to accept Christ? I wasn't ready until she comes up to me and she starts to prophesy about my life. She starts to tell me, God has saved your life numerous times. I told you, I was in the street. I, I tried to live like a thug, but I was a scholar at school. I was phenomenal at school. I was a natural leader for my baseball team. I couldn't shake the streets. I've had guns pointed at my face. I've been in drive-bys, fights, rumbles. I've used countless drugs. And she tells me, this is your last chance. God's warning you. He saved your life and she starts to name to me in my ear specific instances, situations that happened that only me and my wife would know. My, my, my wife met her that day. 
And I start to realize that the power of God is flowing through this woman and what she's saying is true. She asked me if I want to do the prayer of faith I accept because I felt an overwhelming flow of God's power and presence at that time I couldn't resist. I knew I needed what she had. I didn't know what she had. I knew I needed what she had. And she told me that what she has was nothing special, but that I could have it too if I had just accepted Christ's offer. And so I did. Mm. Now, Noel, before before you move on there, yeah. what were some of those things that she mentioned that got your attention? That time that I had the gun in my face, the people that were in that room, I didn't tell them about that. I tried to hide my secret gangster thug life. I didn't, I didn't want them to know about that stuff. It's not that I was ashamed. I just tried to carry myself a little bit like a mafioso. She told me that I was looking, I was staring down the barrel of a gun. And that the next time that I was staring down the barrel of a gun, that the guy would pull the trigger. I thought I was going to die when that guy held that gun. It was a young kid. He was a young kid. He may have been 13, 14. Mm. My friends thought that I was a goner because some of my friends were there. They threw coats over their faces because they thought they were about to see bloodshed. And I told the guy, go ahead and shoot. And he didn't. The Lord, for some reason, had mercy on me at that moment. So when she talks to me and whispers in my ear, she told me about that moment. There was no way she could have known that. Not the way that she described it. She talked about my friends running, hiding. She told me how I felt. She told me the color of the, the color of the barrel of the gun. Mm. And she said the next time would be my last time. So I accepted Christ. When I accepted Christ, I didn't understand that it was a journey. I didn't understand it be, that it was an adventure, an odyssey, so to speak, because when you come to Christ, you are born again. And I was born again, and I didn't carry myself as such. I continued to do a lot of the things that I did before. I still hung out with some of the people that I hung out with that I shouldn't have hung out with. And so I was in and out of this Bible study because the Bible study was run that day, but the lady, the woman, who happened to be the co-pastor of my old church, she decided, she was led by God, that she would run Bible studies for about a year there, every Wednesday. And so many people came in and out of that home and heard the Word of God. I would say anywhere between 30 or 40 people congregated in that home, not at any given time, but in a large time frame. I was in and out of the Bible studies, in and out of the street. I was hearing the Word of God. Sometimes I was consistent, sometimes I wasn't. But then some of the people in my, my neighborhood had gotten shot. Some of the people had gotten arrested. I kept hearing the testimony, the prophet, excuse me, the prophecy that she said over my life. And I said, it, it could be me. I'm probably next. I'm probably going to go down too. Meanwhile, I still couldn't shake the depression. It was still coming in. And I still couldn't shake the sexual immorality because it was still coming in and out. My wife, she wasn't my wife at the time. She caught me. And I wasn't even doing anything explicit. The time that she caught me, even though I had done things that were explicit, she decides that she's going to leave me. We had been together at this point seven years. And so the only girl I've ever had that I've known for seven years decides that she's going to leave me. And I talk to her and I'm pleading with her and I'm like, stay with me. I didn't do anything crazy. I didn't do anything serious. Even though I had done on other occasions, even though that time that she called me, it wasn't. I guess it was justice. And she tells me, the only way I'll come back to you is if you look for Christ. And don't look for Christ because you want to get with me. She says, look for Christ because if he wants us to be together, we'll be together. I had done Bible study for over a year and I had never visited the church that this lady was giving Bible study for. A lot of people would have given up some people just show up to a person's home once and think that they did a good job. And maybe they do, and that's God's will. But this lady taught us God's word for over a year, hmm. even though a lot of us were inconsistent. From that group of 30 or 40 people that were in that Bible study, only three of us got baptized. Me, my wife, and a very close friend of ours who ended up becoming our roommate. We fi I finally come to the church, and when I get to the church, I get there early. And the church starts to get packed. As people start walking into the church, people look at me in my face. They see my demeanor because I was a bit of a thug. And nobody wants to sit next to me. Before you know it, half an hour, 45 minutes past service is about to start officially. 
all the seats are filled except the two seats to my left, the two seats to my right, a couple of seats in front of me and the seats behind me. And everyone is smushed together except for me. I'm sitting by myself. And that overwhelming sadness that I fought my entire life comes in like a storm. And the lady who preached that day happened to be the sister of the co-pastor who gave the Bible study for over a year. And she said, on my way over here, I was going to give a message, but I changed my message because God asked me to change my message. And she preached and she taught about an example. She said, there's a little dog here somewhere. There's a dog, somebody who was a pr precious treasured dog. She gave a story about a dog who lived inside the home and a family had finally given birth to a child and the dog was no longer allowed in the house. The dog was kicked out of the house and one day they forgot they left the door open to the house. The dog was in the house. When they found the dog, he had blood on his mouth. They thought that the dog had did something to the baby. And when they had rushed in to check on the baby, they realized that there was a dead snake next to the baby and the dog was just trying to defend that baby. And she said, you are the dog that I'm referring to is in this service today. Oh man, I went to the altar during the altar call and I cried my eyes out, man. I, cry, I can't really, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how, I didn't have enough sleeves to wipe my boogers <laughs> and tears with the way I cried after that altar call. I didn't even finish the service, I, I left. I, I just, I couldn't stop crying. I walked out into the rain and I said, Father God, I'm finally gonna do it your way. My life changed after that day. God put a covering over me, some kind of spiritual anesthesia. I don't know what happened exactly, but I do know that whatever I was fighting, that sadness, the sexual immorality, it may have been casted out, but it was still roaming. And I started to enter into ministry so powerfully. If there was a department for it, or there was an initiative for it, I got into it. Hmm. I preached in the street. The co-pastor that preached in that home, she no longer was preaching in that home. She started visiting homes, homes of witches, homes of people with broken marriages, you name it. She brought us there. I was a rookie in Christ, and there were so many people in this church, and not many people let alone were invited or were there in those missions. I preached in nursing homes. I preached in prison in the Bronx of ECBC, Rikers and Queens. I preached in bookings downtown. Man, I preached everywhere, anywhere and everywhere. I did a radio show for our church. I was driving the van. I was on fire, man, for God. And very quickly, I had less than two years converted I got baptized and they told me that in order to get baptized, I needed to be married because I was in fornication. So I, on a last minute effort, me and my wife decided we're gonna get married next Friday. It was like a Thursday, it was like a Wednesday or a Thursday. We're gonna get married on Friday. We got baptized on Saturday and we began our public ministry on a Sunday. This is all within a year, heavy into ministry and very quickly called into leadership for this English ministry because the church I attended was a Spanish church. And I could feel God calling me into this English ministry because I had dominated the English language in such a way, well, both language, Spanish and English, in such a way that I could make the smoothest transition for God's glory. And I did, me, my wife, and our roommate, we were called into leadership together. A lot of people questioned why we got called into leadership so quickly, we had just converted. But a lot of people understood right away once they got close to us and they realized who we were and what we were doing and how God was flowing through us that God called us. But there was a special day before I ever got baptized, before I ever began my special, my uh, public ministry, that there was a town hall meeting in the church. And during this town hall meeting, God had revealed to me something that I needed to share with the church publicly and no one had ever heard me sp speak up at the, until this point. And I told the church what God had ministered to me and I said, a lot of times we say time is money, but the truth is that time is much more valuable than money. And if God wants us to tithe, give 10% of what we make, our income, then how much more valuable would our, would our, tithe, for, for our tithe for time be? And God ministered to me that for the people who are unable to give tithes with money, God is calling you for a tithe of time. We have a fresh set of 24 hours. He wants us to give even the people who did have money. He wants us to give two hours and 24 minutes of every day dedicated to him. I ministered that so powerfully to the church and from that point forward, that launched me into public ministry, that launched me into ministry in the street, 
A lot of people were inviting me into all these different ministries. That's what started it. Two years after we got baptized and married, my wife and I, we had our first child in 2015. And everything was glorious up until this point. When she had the baby, she was going through baby blues that eventually turned into postpartum depression. I also fell right back into the depression that God had numbed me from. It was new for me. I hadn't, I hadn't experienced it in two years. That was the longest I lasted without feeling it. I thought it was gone. You can fact check me, but that was around the time where there were four blood moons. There were two in 2014 and there were two in 2015. In order to cope with the depression, I thought I would bring it to God and I did. I decided I was gonna do 30 nights of prayer in our church because another part of our ministry to the leaders of the church, we had, we had been given keys to the church and we could pray on the altar at night. And man, we would pray all the time at night from like 12 o'clock midnight all the way to like four or five in the morning to then take a nap for like two hours and go to work. We thought to ourselves, we said, if we did it when we were in the world, when we were clubbing, spend money on bottles of alcohol, we might as well do it for God. So that's what we did. So I started <clears throat> an initiative, a 30-day prayer, a 30-night prayer in the church because we thought that the, the four blood wounds were very prophetic. They all landed on four Jewish holidays. Two of them were Passover. The other two were on the Feast of Tabernacles on or around. And a lot of people started to join us because they were afraid, or at least they wanted to be ready for the coming of the Lord. We didn't know what was happening. A person joined our group who, a lot of people joined our group, but this specific person joined our group. And one day, about 10 to 15 days into the prayer, right? Because it was a 39 prayer initiative. She asks for us to go to a hospital to pray for a friend's grandmother who's in a coma. She puts it in a group chat that we had. I waited hours to see if somebody would respond because I wanted to be with my wife who had just given birth to our child. She's about a month postpartum. She can't come to the church. At least she was advised not to come to the church as much as she used to, as much as she'd like. And in reality, looking back at it, I should have probably focused on that ministry rather than the ministry in the church and just delegated. But I didn't know it at the time. And I thought that the right thing to do was to be in the altar at church. But what I should have did was created an altar at home. But nonetheless, I focused on the altar at church and I focused on the leadership ministry rather than the ministry in my home. And in some ways neglected my wife who was going through postpartum depression who was with our newborn baby. I go to the hospital, I respond to this request because I, no one responded to the request. Nobody responded to her text. She said, can somebody come to the hospital and help me pray for my friend's grandmother who's in a coma? We wanna see if God will do a miracle or at the very least she can accept Jesus. I waited hours, nobody responded. So I responded. I said, I'll go. Like the good leader that I am, I can't let this person down. I'll neglect my own personal life and I'll show up for her or the needs of Christ, and which is a good thing, but there's, there's priorities. When I make it to the hospital, I made it first. That girl, she shows up and another friend of ours who accepted, but accepted after I accepted the offer to go pray. He's not there yet. We're waiting and we're waiting for her friend. And while we're there waiting, we start talking about the things of God. We start talking about how, how God is moving and all these different things. And she says, I got to tell you something, though. And she tells me, I can't stop thinking about you. I said, what? Don't take it the wrong way. I'm just telling you because I want you to know, but not in a bad way so that you can help me pray. She says, when I'm like washing the dishes while I'm at work, even when I'm talking to my own husband, because she was married. And at this time I was married too. And at odd moments throughout the day, all day, I, I can't stop thinking about you. You're just in my head. And the first thing that I can utter out of my mouth was, you shouldn't have told me that. Because at that moment, I felt the covering that God had put over my life, the spiritual anesthesia against, spiritual immor against sexual immorality, I felt it disintegrate instantly. What I hadn't felt in regards to sexual immorality for like three years, I started to feel it again. And it's not that I was attracted or I desired her, but the desire to be the object of somebody's lust came back. And I'm like, you shouldn't have told me that. I'm a man. You don't tell men that. She's like, but you're my leader. I should be able to tell you this so you can help me pray. 
I'm like, you shouldn't have told me that. At that moment, our other prayer partner comes, the girl whose grandmother it was comes, we go upstairs and we continue to do the work of God. The lady didn't come up from her coma, but we were able to get responses from her. We asked her to squeeze our hands if she could say, if, if she could hear our voice, she squeezes. We asked her if she wanted to accept Jesus, the lady squeezes her hand. We do the prayer of faith and we ask her to make affirmations of faith. And as we ask her to make affirmations of faith, she squeezes our hand. And she accepted Christ. She was in a coma, but she was able to be, she was conscious enough to respond and accept Christ. But as I'm coming out of that hospital, I'm starting to get worried. Because sometimes we think that God deals with certain issues, with certain demons. And what happens is that the demons stay quiet, waiting for an opportune moment. I thought that I had gone away. All it did was hide. I thought because I wasn't dealing with it, that it wasn't, any, it wasn't there anymore. And when she had told me that, it all came flooding back. But I was, I was focused. I was going to fight against that. I wasn't going to give in to it. This time I'm a Christian, this time I have Jesus. There's no way I'm gonna fall again. So I start to ignore her. That was like on a Friday, that event at the hospital, Sunday service comes and I'm not looking in her direction. I'm not, I didn't even say hi to her, I ignored her. But I did take a glance at her and she looks depressed. She looks sad, she looks mortified. She's so upset. She texts me Monday while I was at work and she texts me apologizing. And she says to me, I'm sorry that I told you what I said. I feel terrible. I hope you don't judge me. I wanted to show compassion and I did. I wanted to be merciful and I did. I said, hey, don't worry about it. It happens, everybody suffers from something. You just happen to be vocal about the thing that you're going through privately. And I'll help you pray. You'll fight and I'll fight and God will be glorified. It sounded great and it was. I could have ended it right there. And when it's time to finally say bye, my curiosity, my flesh, got the best of me. I don't know what would have happened with my life if I just would have hung up, if I would have just stopped the conversation right there. But at that moment, one weak moment, a question came to my mind that I just, I had to know the answer to and I should have never asked it, but I did. And I asked her, for how long have you been feeling like this? I should have never asked her that. I got curious. My flesh wanted to feel good. I wanted to know. And she told me, remember that time you got up and you shared your revelation about how time is money and but time is greater than money and that we should tithe our time in front of the church? I was like, that was two years ago. She's like, ever since you stood up that day, I, start, I started looking at you. I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't not look at you. I said, you've been looking at me for two years and forget about it. I started to feel crazy, man. Everything that I had thought I fought against, everything I thought I defeated, everything I thought I nailed on the cross just came rushing back. And because I hadn't dealt with it for so long, I couldn't handle it in real time. But we decided we were going to fight our flesh. But the seeds of Satan, of sexual desire were planted. We wrestled, me and that girl, back and forth, texting each other in lust, but also we're going to fight our fight back and forth. I remember that was around February, March. Easter's like sometime in April. And I'm asked by the pastor of the church to testify, uh, to preach on like a Friday or Saturday about La Siete Palabra de Jesus. So it translates literally to the seven words or the seven phrases of Jesus that he said before he died. And I had one of the words, I had one of the phrases. And I'm taking the train to go to this church my brother, as I'm walking out of the church, as I'm walking out of the train toward the church, but I'm walking literally out of the wagon, you know, you hear the bing, boom of the MTA train. I heard for the first time God's audible voice. And he says, if you have sex with her, you shall surely die. And I froze in front of the train as I got out of the wagon and the door closes, the train pulls off and I look behind me because I know I heard that voice and I was by myself. Was, and this was this was an audible voice? An audible voice. It was the first time I had heard the audible voice of God. Mm. God had ministered to me in my heart very clearly, very plainly, and I could discern what he wanted. But this was the first time I heard an audible voice. He said, if you have sex with her, you shall surely die. I go and I preach this. One of the phrases that I had to preach about Jesus is uh, before Jesus died and 
I can't even preach right because I, I was still trying to make sense of what was happening to me. And I tried to fight my fight because that's our thing. That's what we would say. I was fighting my fight. But we kept talking, man. We kept talking. Sometimes she would entice me. Sometimes I would entice her. And a month later, what God had told me kind of wore off. The power of what he said to me no longer had that same effect. And I decided I was going to go see her in person. And I went to her job with the intention to try to do something, to try to like physically hug her, kiss her, whatever it was. And she resisted, she fought, but eventually she gave in and that started, an that officially started a physical affair. Now we were no longer texting or talking on the phone. Now we were seeing each other and we were kissing. And as all things that are sinful, it started to escalate. Now I'm in adultery. See, before I was in fornication, before I was young, I wasn't in Christ, but now I'm in Christ. I'm a leader, a minister for so many different departments, and I'm in sin. I tried to fight it. I told my pastor about it, and she put us in disciplinary action. So she took me, she put me on timeout. I couldn't do anything. And that was the first time I had ever been in a timeout. And Noel, how old were you at this time? Oh man, I was, t my, my daughter was born, this was 2015. I was 27 years old. I converted at 24, baptized at 25. So two years after baptism, one year after being called into leadership. When I spoke to my leaders, my pastors, I felt so much rejection. I knew you were gonna fall. Your ministry's over and done with. God can't use you anymore, but at least you can still be saved. A lot of the friends I had abandoned me. They didn't want to associate themselves with me. The wives of men didn't want to not even greet me. They didn't want to give me a handshake. They didn't want to do anything because they were afraid I was looking at them with lust. But I wasn't. I was really trying to fight my fight. I feel like she was really trying to fight her fight too. But we were, we were failing. We were victims to our flesh. And eventually, like I said, all things that are sinful escalate. They don't just stay as they are. We decide that we want to have sex. We just decide, you know what, whatever. We're just going to do it and we're going to do it. And we went to a hotel. And when I pulled up to the parking lot of the hotel, my pastor called me. There was a, a vigil, a, a three-night prayer, a three-night fasting and prayer, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. This is a Friday night. And she says, I don't know where you are. I don't know who you're with, but the people you are with don't want the best for you. Come to church. She called me at two o'clock in the morning. This lady never calls me. Up to this point, she may have called me twice. This may have been her third time calling me at two o'clock in the morning. And when I told her, I said, that was the pastor who called me. That was her pastor too. We decided not to do anything because that was a sign from God. And, and Noel, very quick, just for even more context here, yeah. before you go to that next part, um, what was the dynamic like with you and your wife oh. at this time? Because you're talking about two in the morning, leaving your home. So what was that dynamic like? I was always in the street. A lot of the people from the street, from different blocks, different neighborhoods, they knew me. So I was in and out of the street. As I was starting to backslide, as I was texting from, let's say, February, March, all the way up to like, this is, let's say, May, June, I started to backslide from the church because I was put into disciplinary action. So I found a refuge. I didn't find refuge in the church. I found refuge in the street. The dynamic between me and my wife was terrible. We had a newborn child. She wasn't even, well, let's say she was like four to six months old. Part of the reason why I was talking to that girl was because she was going through her depression and she was transitioning into her role as a mother. I was so used to it just being us. We had spent seven years, it being us. I wasn't used to the fact that we were gonna have to parent this child and that we were gonna have to forfeit or invest some of the time that we had for each other into this child. And it sounds great on paper, it sounds great theoretically, but I, I wasn't emotionally prepared for it. I did my best to try to be a dad. And we did a great job being moms and dad despite what we were going through. But just because you're a good mom or you're a good dad doesn't mean you're a good husband or a good wife. And that that area itself needs investment. She later told me that she didn't have the capacity to be able to take care of me or her wifely duties the way she used to. Because she was so focused and so involved in being a mother and because she was suffering at first baby blues that then turned into postpartum. 
And I too neglected it because I was suffering depression in my own. And I got exhausted trying to fight. Man, I prayed, I fasted. I think I read more of God's word in that span of time, more than any other time in my life. I would read, I think I read the book of Job in like two days. I read first and second Samuel because I was looking into David's story in like three days. And I read so much, I read, the, I read Genesis, especially the part with Joseph, when he ran away from sex from that woman who tried to like entice him into sex because I was looking for the answer in scripture. Mm. And, I, and I couldn't find refuge in the prayer. I couldn't find refuge in the fast. I couldn't find refuge in the word. I couldn't find refuge in anyone in the church or just being in the church. And I started to spiral into sin. Pastor had called though. She didn't give up on me, even though she said she knew that I was going to fall into some kind of sin. The pastor had called me, interceded that one time we were in the hotel. And then we started to fight our fight because we felt God was intervening. And then weeks later, we did it again. We decided we were going to go to a hotel. And this time we go to the hotel and the hotel was packed. It was booked. They said it was a two and a half hour wait to get in there. We was like, nah, man, this is God telling us not to do it. And then the third time she had her period and I didn't have a condom. She said, you don't have a condom? I said, no, I don't do this. I, I don't carry condoms on me. I don't, I don't really do this stuff anymore. Like, and we decided not to do it. And slowly but surely, we started to drift away. We started to, the blindfold that the devil had put in both of us, me and that girl started to fight, uh, started to fade. And we did indeed start to win our fights. And that lasted about two years. And I can testify today that although I did have an affair, I never had sex with that girl. God kept me from having sex with her. God kept her from having sex with me. And what God told me, that I shall surely die if I did have sex with her, came to pass. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do it. He protected me. He kept me. But that didn't stop the attacks from coming. It didn't stop the after effects of what an affair is. A lot of people had abandoned me. No one trusted me with ministry. No one even wanted me to preach in churches, out of churches. The, the man who was once on fire is now ice cold. And I'm trying my best. I had seasons where I bounced back into God and, and bounced out of God. And I see myself spiral no longer into sexual immorality with that girl, but now finding refuge in the street because I felt the rejection at that church. And now I'm back in the street like I was before I converted, but this time I'm not 24. Now I'm like 29, almost 30 years old. And I'm smoking weed again, I'm drinking, and I'm violent, and I'm more violent as ever. The depression starts to get really bad. I start to feel the sadness. Like I said, every time the wave hits, it hits harder. And what I suffered before was just suicidal ideation. I just, it was just feelings of suicide. It was never actual planning. But this time around, I met Jesus. I met God. I had encounters with him. I heard his voice. I felt his love. His power flowed to me and through me. And even though I was in the world, even though I was outside of church and backslidden, I couldn't ignore what I had experienced. You can't just unfeel what you have felt. You can't unhear what you heard. But now I'm in the world and I'm smoking more weed than ever and I'm drinking more than ever. I'm still talking to girls at this point, but I'm just getting numbers and I have no intention of, of talking to the girls after the getting them. I just needed to feel good about myself. So I would get girls numbers and erase them after the end of the night because I just needed to feel good about myself. I felt terrible. And the depression starts to get worse, season after season, wave after wave. And it got so bad for me that I had a dream, it was more like a revelation, that I was near the water, like a river, and Jesus had his back turned, and I was able to walk on the water toward him. And when I grabbed him on his shoulder, he turned around and he was angry at me. I'll never forget the angry face that Jesus gave me. And I immediately woke up and I remember feeling for months, if not like a year and change, I'm not saved. Hmm. My man, I wrestled with the feeling of not being saved for over a year. And every night I had to rest my head on my pillow. I had to swallow the truth and deal with the fact that I was no longer saved because Jesus had looked at me with such disappointment. And that drives me deeper into depression and that drives me deeper into the spirit of suicide. And I'm starting to make plans and I'm trying to figure out how I can do it because when you cast out a demon, 
once that demon has been casted out and it tries to make its way back in, if he makes its way back in, if it makes its way back in, it comes with seven worse. So the depression that I had suffered and the suicide I was battling is now seven times worse. And I'm thinking to myself, how can I commit the act? How can I escape this reality? How can I escape this truth? And I thought to myself, I finally came up with this brilliant plan about how I was gonna do it. I thought to myself, I'm gonna take fentanyl because fentanyl, if I take enough fentanyl, I overdose on fentanyl, it'll be painless and it'll do the job quickly. This is like three years ago, 2020. Every time I thought about doing it, the only thing that stopped me from actually doing it were the, the images of my daughter's faces. I no longer lived for anything else or anybody. The only thing that kept me alive in those seasons was waking up to my daughter's face. That's what I told the girl. That's why the, the, the affair that I had before with her, that's where it ended. She wanted me to be in a relationship with her. She wanted to leave her husband and she wanted me to leave my wife so that we could be together. And I told her, listen, between you and my wife, at this time, it could, it's a toss up. I don't know who I wanna be with. I'm not sure. But between you and my daughter, it's a no brainer. It's my daughter all day. You can never replace my daughter. She said, but you can still be a father away from her. That doesn't mean just because you leave her and she's not living with you doesn't mean you can't be a father. And I said, nah, you don't understand that waking up and seeing my daughter's face every morning is what keeps me alive. And if I no longer wake up and see my daughter in the morning, I shall surely die. But the depression gets deeper and I'm trying to reconcile with Christ again. And I have so many failed attempts and I'm starting to get discouraged. And this one day I'm having this terrible bout of crying and I decide I'm gonna finally, I'm gonna finally do it. I know who to get the drug from. I know how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna write this note. And three weeks later, my nephew, who I consider my son, who considered me my, like a father, on separate occasions of his life, my nephew told me, I wish you were my father. My nephew overdosed on fentanyl. And I had to suffer one of the greatest pains I've ever suffered in my life. I knew he was struggling with drugs. I didn't know to what degree. I tried to help him. I even tried to keep him in my home for some time so that he wouldn't do it. Tried to keep him clean and he did. He stayed in my home, but I was so busy with life and I was so busy with other things that I couldn't concentrate on him like he needed me to concentrate on him. I tried to refer him to a hospital and my nephew before he died, 10 months before he died, he tells me all I need is God and love. The same method I wanted to use to kill myself was the method in which he ended up overdosing three weeks later. Wow. I have to be the rock for my family. A lot of people are devastated in my family at the fact that such a tragic event happens. And, but this time around, I was reconciling with God and it felt different because I told myself I would build myself up so that I can come back to the old church I went to and then suffer defeat in that church because the place that I thought was supposed to be the place of peace now became a place of war. I built up myself enough away from the church that I said, you know what, this time around, it was like third or fourth time I had did it. I'm not going over there because every time I build myself up and I go over there, I just kept getting destroyed. I'm, I'm not gonna go over there. I'm gonna build myself up and I'm gonna go somewhere else. And around that same time is when he dies. And I realize when I look at the casket and I see everyone crying, that was supposed to be me. I should have been the one in the casket. All the people that are crying for him would have been crying for me. And I decide I need to change my life. All the people who knew him, who knew us, are now terribly saddened, extremely saddened. And one of the people there with my wife, they say the only thing that we can do to find refuge in this terrible tragedy is Bible study. So in the same place that I converted in 2013, it's the same place we started giving Bible study about eight or nine years later. I asked God, what, God, what do you want me to preach about? And he said, a lot of the people that are going to come to the Bible study don't know the gospel. I want you to teach them about the gospel. So then every week I start preaching about the book of John. The first week we did chapter one, the second week, chapter two, so on and so forth. We did it for 21 weeks, 21 chapters, 21 weeks. Leading up to the 21 weeks, somebody from our group says, I want to get baptized but I don't wanna get baptized in that church. I don't wanna get baptized in any church. I want you to be the one who baptized me because you were the one who taught me the gospel. God used you, God ministered to me that you have to be the one to baptize and I'm scrolling through scripture. I'm like, I'm not a pastor. I'm not belonging to any church at this time. What do I do? How do I do it? And I can't find anything 
that speaks about merits or qualifications for who got, who baptizes and who can't. And we're discussing with people that we trust and some people are saying, go ahead. Some people are saying, don't do it. But then I consulted with God and I'm like, God, should I baptize her or not? And if she died and I didn't baptize her, how would I feel? Versus if she died and I knew that I baptized her, how would I feel? And I think I said, I don't care how bad it looks, how disobedient I look, I baptized her. Because if anything were to happen to her, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't baptize her. Another people from the group, they were having a broken relationship. They were in fornication and they were about to split. They had like four kids in that same Bible study. They're, they're restored, their relationship. They end up deciding they want to get married. And they're like, okay, we want to get married, but we want you to be the one who marries us. And I'm like, I'm not a pastor. I, I don't really belong to a church. But you know what? I'll do whatever I need to do because the best way to combat fornication is not just to say, I rebuke the spirit of fornication, but to literally marry people out of fornication. So I said, if I am going to be an ambassador for Christ and I really am going to slay demons the way I know how to slay demons because something that I say is that I have personal beef with the devil. He stole from me, so I steal from him. In order to slay the spirit of fornication, I married them. And from this Bible study, Jubilee Hill Ministry is born and people are starting to be restored. I only named two situations, but people are coming out of depression. People are coming out of anxiety. People are coming out of sadness. Relationships are being restored. People are starting to meet Jesus. All kinds of people are coming. People who suffer substance use, people who suffer from LGBT, gayness and things like this. All kinds of people are coming to this Bible study to hear the gospel because I'm preaching it and I'm no longer preaching it with the weight of a doctrine on my back. I'm preaching it as God gives it to me verse by verse. I, I taught them every verse, every chapter. And the ministry's born, Jubilee Hill Ministry. And from that ministry, a church was born, the ICU church. I didn't wanna do it, I ran away from it for so long. I denied it. I said, I, I feel like somebody has to like ordain me or something like this, I don't know. But I asked God for a sign, I said, God, you gotta speak to me. I'm not going to take the step forward unless it's you that talks to me. And in the matter of a month, a 30-day span, about 30 or 40 unrelated people, I, I promise you that every single person who spoke to me in this 30-day span asked me, are you a pastor? In a 30-day in a span, all of them unrelated asked me, are you a pastor? I look up to the sky and say, God, you have a funny sense of humor. And we birthed the ICU church, the Intensive Christ Unit. And I want to tell this testimony because, to be honest, I believed a lot of the things that they had told me. I, I fell into a terrible sin of adultery and they told me I could never be a minister again. They told me my ministry was dead. They told me that I will never be the same. They said the least, the least you could do is save your soul because you're done. And I don't know who's listening to this and I don't know who needs to hear this message, but God ministered to me to share my story because somebody needs to know that God restores. It doesn't matter how broken you are or how withered of a fig tree you may feel like. It doesn't matter what people have declared over your life, that if you come into God's presence and you're sincere, God can restore you and he can make you better than you were before. For a long time, I thought I'll never be the same. And God was right. I wouldn't be the same. I became better. Praise God. Noel, at some point you had to have that conversation with your wife to be able to tell her the things that were happening. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And obviously you can't tell her testimony of what she had to go through and you know the process that she had to go through. But if you could just give us a little bit of insight from your perspective of coming clean to your wife and how God was able to restore that relationship. My wife is a powerful tool in God. I met her because I prayed to God for a woman. God used her so that I can come to a Bible study. God used her so I can come to church. God used her so I can come to De La Fe testimony. And to be honest, I didn't have to come clean. She's a very smart woman with great discernment. She was intercepting my texts the entire time. Every single message I sent her and that that girl sent me she was getting to. <laughs> she saw everything I said to her and she saw what everything that girl said to me. And she waited patiently until she couldn't hold it anymore. And she confronted me about it. 
I got caught three times talking to that girl. And it wasn't until I told her the entire truth, about two years into that whole ordeal, I told her everything. I told her how we almost had sex. I told her how I felt. I told her that I no longer wanted anything but just to be saved because I no longer felt saved. And that she wasn't the priority, that salvation was the priority, very similarly to how I came to God the first time, that I didn't want to be with her, or at least not work it out. We were together and it was very rocky because she was cold and I was cold. And it almost felt like we were roommates. But what kind of held us together was the fact that although she came from the coldness of wherever she felt, and I came from the cold place that I was in, we were able to meet at the altar. And little by little, the ice blocks that covered our hearts began to melt. And we started to, to reason with each other and to get warm with each other once again. I praise God for her life. We kind of like don't share our testimony too often because we didn't want to throw anybody under the bus and we're kind of a little afraid to mention certain situations because people know about the story. Everybody heard about, well not everybody, but a lot of people heard about it. But the more we prayed about it and the deeper we got into our ministry, the more we realized that we don't matter and that if those people are healed, what they feel doesn't matter. What matters are the people who need to be restored from their situations. And so we shared what we shared. We shared what we shared. We haven't really talked about it publicly, except for the select few people in our church. And this is the first time we're really coming out about the entire truth. Because there was a narrative that was painted about me at my old church that um, I didn't fight too much against. I let God fight for me. And I said, Father God, if you truly are with me, allow me to excel in all the things that I do for you. People prophesied against me, man. They told me I, I was in disobedience. They told me I would never prosper. They told me anything I tried to do would never work. But the more they tried to prophesy against me, the, the more God fought for me, the, the more valiantly God presented himself in my favor. And I just decided to pray every day to him and ask him, if I'm in error, my God, correct me. And if at any moment, Father God, I steer in the wrong direction like a great GPS that you are, Steer me in the right direction. Reroute me, my God. And honestly, for a long time, God has been quiet. It must, must be that I'm, I'm going in the right direction. Praise God. Noel, uh, in your testimony, you mentioned several times uh, the being numb and the being numb of depression, being numb of these different things. And I'm curious to hear about the healing, because there's one thing to be numb and not being able to feel something, but it's still there. And then there's another thing of being healed. And uh, I'm curious if you could talk to us about this very briefly of uh, what did that healing look like when it came to the lust, when it came to that old man, as you now surrender to God in, in that new season and in this new new season that you are in? Just because the demon that you used to fight with is quiet doesn't mean the demon's gone. I confuse the demon's silence for the demon's defeat or the spirit of lust or the spirit of sexual immorality's silence for his defeat or my victory. This time around, after the passing of my nephew, I wanted to take things very slowly as opposed to being rushed into ministry or rushed into salvation or rushed into anything. I decided to take it slowly and make sure that there was no, I didn't leave anything, I didn't leave anything undone. And I decided to combat the spirit directly. I decided that I would confess, of course, to my wife and to the people who needed to know. And we do, a, we do this thing during Bible study and sometimes service where I say, I'm, I'm, starting, an, I'm starting a fire. I'm, I'm creating an altar here and I'm starting a fire. Anybody who needs to confess anything that they're battling with, you can throw it into the fire. Under the belief, under the premise that bringing things to the light, when you bring things to the light, God will glorify himself. And understanding that if you cannot confess anything with your mouth, a problem that you're going through or a spirit that you're battling with, a demon that you're battling with, you are subject and you are bound by that demon. If you can't admit that you're battling something, you are enchained by that demon. 
So we start these altars, these fires during Bible study, especially, but sometimes during service. And I confess that I told my group during the book of John, I said, I was going through this. This is my testimony. Just in case you guys hear it from some other, some, from some other source, this is what I went through. This is why I was battling in that place. But it's what led me to this point and God can restore me. And he is, he's doing it actively and he can restore you. And I threw that into the altar of fire. And then other people started to throw their things into the altar of fire. When I gave up marijuana the first time, back in 2012, 2013, I didn't do it in my own power. One day I had woke up sweating and I don't know what it was, but the desire within me that had to smoke was no longer there. And then again, about two or three years later, when it was time to give it up, I didn't give it up. I put it in the altar of fire and just randomly one day, it wasn't random, God knows all things, but to random to me, one night I woke up sweating, cold sweats at three or four o'clock in the morning. I said, it happened again. He did it again, it's gone. I, I, I don't feel it inside of me anymore. No one rebuked it. I just threw it into the altar of fire. I said, Holy Spirit, whenever it is that you want to deal with it, you deal with it. Now, the alcohol was different. You would think, right, all substances would be encapsulated or encompassed into one thing. Nah. One day I'm shopping, I'm going to BJ's, and I'm in the parking lot, and God ministers to me a word, and I go and I look it up, and God tells me he wants me to conduct myself like a bishop, like an overseer. I'm not even a pastor at this time. I'm still, I'm still doing the book of John Bible studies, teaching people like, you know, the gospel. And God is ministering to me. You have to conduct yourself like a bishop, like an overseer. And part of that is not giving yourself up to drink. I thought it would make more sense for me to carry myself like a, de like a deacon. In the same chapter, it says you can be given to little drink. But God ministered to me, no, I want you to carry yourself like a bishop, be given to no drink. That one I had to wrestle with like Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And it was hard. I went through withdrawals, but day by day I fought that one. I fought alcohol as opposed to the marijuana that God just did it suddenly. And the sexual immorality, that was one that I had to wrestle with too. But that was a different fight because that fight would come randomly when the enemy felt like I was having weak moments. Noel, how is your relationship with your wife today? To be honest, our relationship is in the best place it's ever been. I can say that from the bottom of my heart. I don't know what it is, but there's just something about true love having have gone through the fire and then being purified through the fire. The fiery trials that we had to endure is what brought us to this pureness of love that we have today. She knows me so much better than she knew me before. And I know her so much better than I knew her before. She told me something so special, so spectacular. I was afraid that she would try to get me back. She said, I'm not interested in trying to get you back because I'm not fighting against you. In fact, I would like for you to use my example as a means for you to catch up. Me getting you back would be giving glory to the devil, but me keeping my testimony, keeping myself pure is giving glory to God. You got a lot of work to do to catch up to me. That was kind of her way of reassuring me that she wouldn't cheat back because I was a big worry of mine. And she didn't. She kept her word. She kept herself pure. We talked. We had to have a lot of tough conversations throughout a span of so many years. But it was the conversations that we didn't know that we needed to have. And having gone through those tough times is what allowed us, <clears throat> is what allowed us to have the pureness of love that we have now. We honestly feel like there's nothing that can come against us. I can't say, I, I can't, I don't think I can, I could have said that before we went through what we went through. I knew that we were in love and I knew that we were in God and that we were mighty in God, but I didn't understand the power of a marriage that a husband has to submit to his ministry of being a husband. And I have to be willing to give my life up the way Jesus gave his life up to the church. I didn't understand that before the ordeal, before the problem, and that a woman has to be able to submit to her husband the way the church submits to Christ. And I don't think she understood that either before we went through what we went through. But after we had gone through what we went through and we both saw that we weren't going anywhere, I, 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 that's a miracle within itself that none of us vanished, none of us left. I could have left, she could have left. And we stuck by regardless of how we felt. And we felt really bad. We didn't like each other for a while but we never stopped loving each other. 
And the fact that we didn't leave each other, we didn't abandon each other through that problem, built a trust within us that, you know, you take vows and you say through sickness and in health and, and all these extremes that you present during vows, we, we really didn't leave each other. And so today we can walk with the confidence and, and the reassurance that <clears throat> it can get ugly and we're not going anywhere. And that kind of sets the table for us so that we can kind of really enjoy each other better than we ever have. And we have an obligation to enjoy each other better than we ever had. I think part of it, we kind of got lost in parenting. We kind of got lost in ministry and we stopped enjoying each other. We kind of like took it for granted, but we don't take it for granted anymore. Amen. Noel, who is Jesus to you? Jesus is the Logos. He is the meaning of all things the divine and creative reason for everything. Everything was made by him and for him. He declares the end from the beginning and that I found my purpose in Jesus. When I was suffering my depression, when I was going through all the sadness that I went through, all the emptiness, that the only one who can fill that void and bring me to the true purpose was Jesus. And so many times, we think that things are meant to break us, but they are to push us into the divine direction of God's purpose. And a lot of times we think things are here to bless us, and they often take us and steer us away from God's purpose. And so when you bring it back to Him, when you bring it to the Logos, the light, in the beginning was the Logos, in the beginning was the Word, He will give purpose to everything that you go through, good or bad. For those who are watching your testimony right now and are currently in an affair and nobody knows it, but they happen to get this part of your testimony and see your testimony, uh, for those who are struggling in that actively right now, um, what can you tell them as they watch you speak about what has happened in your life? I'm going to tell them what I tell everyone in my congregation, never let the devil steal your praise. A bad season in your life, bad moments in your life don't define you. And although in this season of your life, you may be fighting against something that seems greater than you, and it may be, it may be greater than you, don't let go of Jesus. In due time, in due season, if you bring it to Him, He can restore all things. He can break the chains of sexual immorality, Talk to him about it. Don't hide from him. He sees it anyway. Even if you hide it from everyone else, bring it into the altar of fire and confess it. The truth shall set you free. It wasn't until I told everyone what I did and everyone knew the truth about me that I could start being healed and being restored. It seems so scary to talk about that truth we're so tempted to hide those shameful things about ourselves, whether it be suicide or an affair, suicidal thoughts or an affair. But if you can just bring it to the light and allow God to be glorified regardless of the circumstances, He will restore you. He will empower you and He will make things better than they were before. Noel, can you pray for those who are watching right now and are ready to repent are ready to give their life to Jesus or rededicate their life back to the Lord. Could you just pray for those who are, are watching right now? Of course. Father God, we give you all the glory and all the honor. We magnify your name in this time, Father God, and we invoke your presence, your power, into those situations for people who are ready to repent. Some people, Father God, are being touched at this very moment. And in the same way that you are present here with us, you are very present with them. I ask, Father God, that you give them the ability, the power to be able to tap in to the true and the true fullness of your grace, the true fullness of your mercy, and the complete power of the Holy Ghost so that they can be freed from whatever chains are holding them back. Break those chains, my God. 
I ask you in the glorious name of Jesus that if anyone is listening to this prayer, that they can find you, Father God, that they can reach you, and that your holy light can enter into the place that they are in right now, that they can feel the Holy Ghost working in a miraculous way and restoring them for good. I know that that person who's listening right now, Father God, is tired of going through the same thing. They keep getting better and they keep getting worse. Father God, I kept getting better and then I got worse. And I asked myself, Father God, when am I going to be healed for good in the name of Jesus? I declare that you are healed for good, that it is the last time that you will ever have to suffer what you've been suffering for so long and that you no longer need to feel discouraged about losing the battle that you've been dying to win. I declare faith, hope, and love over your situation, and I ask that you can be blessed in a glorious way. In Jesus' name we pray. Hey everybody, I hope the new testimony has blessed you, has encouraged you. Just wanted to let you know that if you are in need of help, that we have people that are ready to speak with you. So down in the description box below, in the comment section, uh, if you're watching from YouTube, if you're listening from our podcast, just look for the link that says, talk to someone who cares. Click on that, fill out the form, and somebody will get in contact with you locally. Now, this is only available to people in the U.S. right now, but we are working to get resources for our international viewers and listeners. But for right now, if you are in the U.S. and you need help, you need to talk with somebody, please fill out that form and somebody will reach out to you. God bless you, and we'll see you on the next testimony.